And I'd like to share with you a passage scripture that's familiar grounds for most of us. And I'd have to say that the passage scripture we're going to look at here this morning, it's not something I have mastered. So I have to keep going back to it to try to see if I can not only learn more about it, begin to start to practice the things that are recorded in this incredible passage of Scripture. We're going to look at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. So if you would, please take out your Bibles and we will read this section of Scripture together. Now this passage of Scripture is written to the early Christians, most of whom were Jewish Christians, who were going through incredibly difficult times. We've learned about that in history as well as from the scriptures. So follow along as I read James' exhortation to the church. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect or mature and complete lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also with the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Like I say, I certainly haven't mastered this scripture, but it is something I'd like to share with you. So follow along in your Bibles and we'll just take it step at a time, um, principle, biblical truth, little bit at a time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you work and breathe through James to give to us hope, to, to remind us of uh, your great strength and power and your sovereign care over your church. May you quiet the heart of anyone who is here this morning who's burdened beyond what they think they can ever stand. We pray that you'll give joy to those who are uh, discouraged with what's happening in their life or in the country or whatever is happening in, in, in their situation. So give us insight from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Martin Luther certainly wrote a lot, and he had some key wonderful thoughts to share to the church over the ages. And when he was co- commenting on how how faith grows, this is what he said. Affliction is the best book in my library. Well, he was right again. Affliction teaches us things we can never learn from a stack of books. 
And no one goes to the library to check this book out or goes to the website to get it. Strangely, however, this book enters into our own libraries whether we want it or not. And we need to know that the Bible teaches that trials, difficulties, tribulation, adversity are normative and to be expected, to not be surprised that they come our way. But the big question maybe this morning is, what should we learn from our trials? And I will tell you up front what I think we should learn. We are to learn that God, in his good providence, works all things together for good, even our adversities, to accomplish his will and to develop our character and grow our faith. Do you believe that's true? Mm -hmm. I believe it's true, but what you believe be true will be tested in adversity. (laughs) James, this half-brother of our Lord, wrote to encourage Jewish Christians who were scattered throughout the region, going through trials and tribulations, away from their families, uh, many of them without jobs and employment. And the church at that time was a tight-knit fellowship or community of faith. They were radically committed to Christ, to his word, and to each other. And together, they found strength. They found strength and encouragement in the face of growing opposition. And what they needed was perspective, like we do in the midst of our trials. James begins his letter with exhortations and with recommendations and reminders. Let's look at the first uh, exhortation, probably familiar to most. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Easily read, Difficult to practice. He urged the afflicted to categorize their trials as reasons for joy rather than bemoan them. He's like an accountant saying, when trials come your way, put the trial under the category, under the ledger listed as a reason for joy rather than under the category, oh me, why did God do this to me? You see, joy doesn't mean we won't have tears, pain, suffering, frustrations, and disappointments. But joy is a mindset. It's a way of looking at life, and what you believe to be true about God will influence the way you look at your trials that come your way. You see, what is joy? Joy is the satisfaction we have in obeying God's revealed will and leaving the results up to him. See, joy is not happiness, but joy is satisfaction in Christ. It's satisfaction that you did what he asked you to do and you're going to trust him for whatever he's going to do in our life. That's how he grows our faith. So as your faith grows, 
so does your joy. Joy is made possible, the Bible tells us, by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and having intimate fellowship with Christ as well as with God's people. Next, he reminds us that God uses our trials for good purposes. That's hard to see when you're in the middle of a difficult time to say, oh, I imagine God has a good purpose for this. And yet that's exactly what James is telling us to do. Because God is sovereign over everything, and I say everything, everywhere, and at all times, and these things serve his holy purposes and pleasure. He does what he desires to do when he desires to do it, and he has the power to do it. That's the God we believe in. The trials that test our faith are intended by the Lord to produce a greater capacity for joy. A greater capacity to persevere. Now this is an interesting thing about uh, God's work in us through trials. When you learn how to handle the pressure of one trial by faith, then the next time you have a trial, you have gained the experience You have learned the faithfulness of God through that trial. And you're able to take more pressure. So that the mature Christian can walk into a situation and go, yeah, this is tough, but God will see us through. You see, they have proven experience because God has proven himself to be absolutely, perfectly faithful, even in and especially in our trials. And what he wants to do is build perseverance or endurance to learn to stay under pressure without folding. And even in the pressure to be able to praise God. That glorifies him. When you can praise God for what you're going through, it glorifies him because what you're saying is you believe he's sovereign. You believe that he's all good. You see, patience is a highly prized virtue by God because it strengthens our faith and increases our joy in Him. In our trials, we don't need to be anxious to try to find an immediate solution to our problem, but we need to learn to focus on long-term benefits that come through trials. I think that captures pretty much what James is trying to say. And then he calls us to rest. Wow. Rest is a result of having faith. When you have faith that God works all things together for good, you can do what? You can rest in his sovereign and his providential care. God wants to produce in us a faith that will grow stronger and stronger Faith to let God work out his purposes. Purposes in our trials while we rest in his grace. So you see, he uses trials to perfect our faith so that we lack, as he says, nothing by way of faith in Christ. God calls us to be restfully available, instantly obedient, and joyfully expectant. Is it okay to repeat something? 
It's not because I forgot it. It's because I don't want you to forget it. God calls us to be restfully available, instantly available, and what? Joyfully expectant. In essence, that's what James is saying here to us this morning. Recently, I saw the faith, the courage, and the joy of brothers and sisters in China. And I'll be going there in two weeks again. And while I was teaching in a room full of pastors, a man came running through the door saying, get Pastor Don out of here, get him out of here. Uh, The Communist uh, Religious Bureau is coming to investigate him. And I'm standing there going, what do I do? (laughs) You know, I pick up my Bible and my stuff and they whisk me out the door down some dark halls and they put me in the back seat of a car and they drove out. Well, we waited a long time driving through the city till we got a phone call said, all clear. When I got back there, uh, the brothers met together with me and they said, uh, well, the man came to investigate you. He had, a pass- he had a picture of your passport. So he says, I know he's here. And uh, if he comes back, I will be back here un- unannounced to catch him. So the pastor said, so what do you want to do? And I go, well, I'm ready to go. But what about you guys? You see, they're involved in that too. And they said, no, if you're willing to stay, let's go back into the classroom and teach. We were there for three days. And the reason I bring that up is to remind us that there are Christians around the world, the church in oppressed lands, that live under the constant threat for their faith. But when you meet them, when you are around them, they have an infectious joy and faith. We had three incredible days with joy and great learning. It's as if because I remained and they remained that we grew closer together because we become brothers in adversity. I respect them. They're exemplary of faith. And the church in America could learn a lot from those in other parts of the world who are oppressed. You see, they count it all joy because they're used to it. (laughs) They're prepared. And we here are surprised by it. When I go to Haiti and there's a catastrophe, this is their question. I wonder what we did to deserve this. When we're here in America, what do I hear? If there's a catastrophe or a situation, we don't know how, we'll say, why did God do this to us? Notice there's a big difference there. It's as if we can't imagine God allowing anything of any difficulty to enter us, but the others are saying, did we do anything wrong to deserve this? Well, James continues. In your adversity, you're to persevere with faith. But then he says, pray. Pray for wisdom as you go through the trial. 
And that's what trials do. They test our faith. And prayer is a way by which we can ask for the wisdom to know, well, what do I do through this trial? How am I supposed to respond? You see, wisdom is divine insight for right thinking and behavior. It is gaining a perspective to our problems and acting according to faith. Wisdom is desperately needed to find a reason to rejoice in our trials. The Lord has promised to grant us his wisdom for such occasions when we pray for it. And this is an interesting thing. God never reproaches a child of God who is suffering and is asking by faith for wisdom. See, that's another thing about our God. The more we get to know him, he loves to give to us. But he loves to give us grace. (laughs) Aren't you grateful we have a God like that? He never tires of our request for grace. He never tires of our request for the Holy Spirit. He loves to do that. And I'm glad he does. Because I need that. We never need to bargain or barter with God to gain divine insight. Instead, he generously gives us all the wisdom we need so that we can begin to rejoice and persevere through those trials. We are not, however, he says, to pray with doubt, wondering if God is all that good or all that powerful. You must have an adequate and appropriate view of God if we are to live as God desires, especially when you go through trials. You don't have an adequate view of God or an appropriate view of God, trials will look very different. You'll become bitter, you'll blame God, become depressed, discouraged. The doubter, he says, is like a seasick sailor in the midst of a storm being tossed to and fro on the deck of a ship. And those who seek God's wisdom in a storm must keep their eyes on the horizon. At least that's what the captain told me to do when I got sick. He said, don't look at every wave that comes your way. He says, look at the horizon. Look ahead. And I think that's exactly what James is telling us to do as well. We must pray by faith in God's goodness and sovereignty to accomplish what is best for him and me. We must pray by faith for God's wisdom so we can gain his perspective and joy. And those who value comfort above character often fall into a sense of victimization or bitterness when they face difficulty and trials. Those who value character above ease count it all joy when they're tested because they believe God has a good purpose for this. And he works to bring us to spiritual maturity because this is how we learn to experience his kind of joy. We have a joyful God who wants us to have joy in him. And the way we learn to find joy in him is to go through trials by faith. 
Faith that he knows what he's doing and he's doing these things for a good purpose. James warns the double-minded men, if you uh, are doubting the power of God, the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, when you pray, don't suppose that your prayer is going to be answered. God hears our prayer when we come to him in faith, fully faith in believing who he is. James calls the poor not to bemoan their financial troubles because nothing can erode away their exalted status in Christ. He calls the rich not to boast or trust in their wealth. The only thing they can truly boast in is, what do you think it is? Christ. Boast in Christ, his humiliation on the cross, and his exaltation at his resurrection and his ascension. Both the poor and the rich need divine wisdom to rightly perceive their identity in Christ. Everywhere that I have traveled over the last eight years to the Philippines, China, Peru, Haiti, or Ethiopia, I can gladly report that Christ is on target. (laughs) He's accomplishing everything he wanted to do, everything he promised he would do. He's redeeming the poor and the uneducated in remote villages and teeming cities. And when you come alongside of these dear brothers and sisters, You can only explain their attitude as a work of God's grace. You see, they rejoice at the smallest things, like a meal, clear water, something over their heads, maybe like a blue plastic tarp. When I have been to these nations, The people, the Christians there, they just lavish their love on you. They love on you big time. I've been fed the finest foods from people who had little for themselves. In the jungle of Peru, they set out for me a table in the middle of the jungle. They set out there with all the trees around me, a little clearing, and they set a plate on the table. There was a plate with a little bit of chicken, which they don't get to have very often, and some rice, and about five-inch grub worms. I looked at those, and I thought, I don't recognize those as uh, french fries. (laughs) And what do I do with these? And they said, this is what you do. Like this, they go, bite off the head, and then you... You get the idea? Like drinking from a Coke with a straw. And they're all looking like, oh boy. And I'm going, (laughs) and then I took one, dropped it when they weren't looking and put it under the dirt and covered it up because I thought, I don't know that I can eat the, the next one. But they were so glad to give me what they couldn't have for themselves. 
I've been given gifts by some of the poorest people in the world. I get beads that are handmade that they're so proud to give. Well, I'll just show you this real quickly. The reason they do is because I want you to see that, well, this is all they could give. And then they also gave to me this. You'll say, what is this? I'm going to start a new fashion thing here, Mission Viejo, by the way. And this is what they would call the tribal crown for the chief. They said, Pastor Tony, we want you to have this, and you are the chief of doctrine in our church. See, I don't have a pointed enough head for that. Now, the reason I show you this is that these people are grateful. They're joyful. And I love being with them. The most characteristic thing about the poor, brothers and sisters, is their joy in knowing Jesus. They love him. They see him as one of theirs. One who is poor and who understands what they're going through. Jesus is their hero, their savior. And I can say this, I understand what Jesus said when he loves the poor. James wrote to these poor Jewish parishioners to give them perspective in their adversity. He encouraged them to go through their trials with the thought of future exaltation of glory. He was trying to give the poor Christian perspective to their humiliation in the world. The poor needed assurance that their lowly position in the world wasn't the final definition of their worth before God. The poor in spirit are those who are humbled by life but exalted by Christ. They are quick to admit their need of grace. How about us? James comforted the poor like Jesus did. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? He says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. And behind our Lord's words was saying, when you put your trust in me, you can rest. I'll take care of you. You're my people. If I care for the birds, I'm going to care for you. So rest. We're called to be grateful. It is impossible to be grateful or to be joyful if we're not thankful. 
Every status of life needs to comprehend and appreciate everything we have, whether it be great or small, is a blessing from God to be enjoyed. If we have been blessed and you're not enjoying it, then there's a problem. We in America have been so overwhelmingly blessed by God that you would think we would be the most joyful people on the face of the earth. But we're not. (laughs) Ecclesiastes 2.24 says, Nothing is better for a man than to enjoy the simple provisions of life like bread, drink, and labor as from the benevolent or graceful hand of God. In other words, temporal need or poverty are not the measure of our eternal worth. Yes. That's why Paul could say, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared for the glory which shall be revealed in us. See, Paul has that same perspective that James had. James encourages God's people to anticipate their future exaltation, our future glorification, rather than bemoaning our present humiliating, difficult situations. James reminds us that our eternal reward outweighs all temporal trials. So Paul says again, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17 through 18. Let me read it to you. For our light affliction. Oh, wait a minute. Did I just read, Paul, that you've been in prison? You've been beaten? That you've been shipwrecked? That you've been without food? You've, you've gone through all this? And you say, for our light affliction? What kind of a attitude, what kind of a perspective does he have? It says, for our light affliction, affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal, permanent. James also exhorts the rich to humble themselves because they have been so blessed. The rich need to be grateful and they need to give joyfully to the needs of the church for the worldwide endeavor of sharing Christ with all peoples. Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. He's established one as well as the other. Your day of prosperity and your your days of trial. 
Surely God has appointed the one who is well so that man can find out nothing that will come after him, so that we'd learn to live by faith. Not our own perception, not our own glory. Paul writes to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to do what? To enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. So James has written to us and to the early Christians. Some poor and others rich. The rich are to glory in Christ's humiliation on the cross and glory in his ascension into glory. We are to be grateful for all we have and generously give joyfully. We are to glory that our true riches are in Christ that can never be taken away from us. Never. The glory of man, however, said James, is like the wildflowers that bloom in the spring, but when the summer heat comes, they will wilt and burn up. If you want an illustration of that, let's say July. Take a look at the mountains around us. Right now, they're yellow and dark green. I love it. But in July, under the heat, it's going to look a lot different. So too are the things that are temporal. But the things that last forever are God's glory and our inheritance in Christ. I'll take that. Temple, temporal riches perish. Eternal rewards never will perish. That's why Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth, where moth and rust destroying, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, where they cannot hack your computer. That's a paraphrase. So just <laughs> For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The question is, where is our treasure? If you treasure Christ, if you treasure the knowledge of Christ being given to the world, we'd care about others. We do all we can do as individuals and churches to make sure that the gospel goes out. Because the day is drawing near. Jesus said, this gospel, the kingdom, shall be preached to all the world. And then what does he say? And then the ends will come. Well, I could tell you this. We're getting near that day because the gospel is getting out to a place it never was before. Are we ready? Christ is in heaven. He's waiting with welcome open arms for our return. So when trials come our way, 
We are to categorize them or put them in the ledger of our life as a reason to rejoice rather than a reason to be bitter or feel victimized. So what should we learn from our trials? We're to learn that God is infinitely good. Therefore, whatever he chooses to do or not do, he does for his glory and our good, whether I see it, believe it, or feel it. He calls us to be restfully available, instantly obedient, and joyfully expectant. Some message I wish I could get out to the church today who bemoans the news, who finds no reason for joy. How sad. We know why there's reason to rejoice. Because we know Christ. He cares for us. He's waiting for you. This is our day. This is our day. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Thank you, Father, for your word. May your Holy Spirit bring these things to reality and practice in our hearts. We thank you for your amazing grace that is greater than our sin. As we prepare to take the bread and the cup, may our hearts be filled with joy, be filled with gratitude for all that you have done for your humiliation of your son on the cross and his exaltation in the resurrection and ascension. May you encourage all those who hear my voice this morning. Encourage us. May we go forth from this place with renewed joy because we find that our joy is the satisfaction of acting in obedience on your revealed word and then leaving the results up to you. Amen.